Should we wait for that to pass? Yeah, can we? <laughs> Those are the <laughs> fire the trucks on their way to put out <laughs> Sarah's hot take about Nebraska. <laughs> Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is August 31st, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining us from Pennsylvania is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? Great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, just counting down the days till NFL season. Got my Eagles hat on, so I'm <laughs> nice. excited. Nice, nice. And joining us from California is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. It's good to, um, we got the band back together. I this know. Week. It had been, it's been like, a while. More than a month. Where have you since... been, Sarah? Traveling the world? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, no, not traveling the world. I, uh, did go sit in a, like, sports free environment in a cabin in the woods, and it was really lovely, but. Ready, I'm ready for the sports again. The sports are, are coming back with a vengeance, as they always we, do. We also have uh, breaking news here. Breaking news. Cam Newton released by the Patriots. Wait. Let's get some instant reaction. Is that, that is real? not a joke. That is a real headline. What? Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. That's the second time in a row. I've got a push alert for a, a, a release of a notable NFL player. Last week or two weeks ago was Tim Tebow. Um, well, I guess it's not a, a little bit of a difference. Notable. A little bit of a and difference in stature. Also, not a surprise remotely. Um, but this one certainly is a surprise. Wow. What? Well, he will end up. You got to figure he'll end up somewhere. I mean, we're like if it seems like every NFL season we're going to get one significant. Last year it was Dak, um, significant quarterback injury early in the year, and you know if it's a contender. I think it's a no-brainer to bring him on. Still, I wasn't. I wasn't. I guess I wasn't expecting him to just be cut. I thought he'd be traded or some something. They're not just just straight up released. That's that's a surprise to me, anyway. Now, uh, now I'm furiously updating the um, the quarterback model in <laughs> to see how it changes things. <laughs> Real time model adjustment Real-time here model on this. Maybe podcast. that should just be the podcast. We sort of make small talk while Neil updates a model. <laughs> Wait, I mean, that's good it, entertainment. That's actually that kind of it. Sometimes <laughs> that basically yeah. is the podcast. Yeah. What am I talking about? <laughs> on today's show, we'll look at the nascent college football season, who we expect to do well, and who we expect to be Nebraska. Then we'll check in with the Paralympics and the incredible halls of medals some Paralympic athletes are winning that put Michael Phelps to shame. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The new college football season is just getting started with big conference changes looming. For some fans in the Midwest, though, a change might do them good. In week zero action last weekend, a mistake-riddled Nebraska team lost 30-22 to to Illinois, and the hot seat for coach and former player Scott Frost is basically on fire. On the Audible with Stu and Bruce from The Athletic, Stuart Mandel talked about what went wrong for the Huskers. It's hard to be shocked at this point when when you watch Nebraska and they just do the same thing. I mean, Scott Frost himself said it's the same movie. As soon as they started playing... It was you're, you. It was clear this is going to be no different than previous Nebraska Scott Frost teams. We had our customary uh, Adrian Martinez fumble. We had our customary 
snap headed. snap over his shoulder or whatever. Yeah, like. we had the, the the punt returner who tried to um, throw a forward pass and got a safety. It was it was it was more of the same. So I need to take just a second to apologize for this segment to the Husker fans in my life. Sorry, guys. I promise I'm experiencing a minimal amount of glee oh, at the state you, of the program. That is complete BS. I mean, you can just hear the joy in your voice. Listen, I, I lived in Nebraska for many years. I was a cyclone exile in a sea of big red. And even when they were bad by their standards like they would fans there would consider the years that i was in nebraska like bad years for them and they were still like you know nine and three and then firing their coach so (laughs) i have earned this a little bit and also i will nebraska fans are going to have the last laugh here since they will be in the big 10 and my school will be without a conference so listen it's fine i'm allowed to take a little a little bit of glee just a little bit a minimal minimal amount but but neil what is going on in lincoln why does nebraska seem to be trapped in its own private version of groundhog day yeah it's a great question well i think um there's two things kind of going on and one has to do with like you said the sort of unrealistic standards that nebraska sort of has where i think the the success that the school had uh, really leading up to the 2000s and really even uh, somewhat into the 2000s, but certainly through like the 90s was just so phenomenal that I think that there's a perception of, well, this is the way that it has to be. And you see this with other schools. Jeff, you would know that from Michigan also. I know. The, I was, the I was perception. like, for, for a second, I was like, are you uh, success in the late 90s followed by repeated delusions of grandeur and repeated firing of coaches? I, I wasn't sure if you were you could have been talking. about. Yeah, Michigan. I could have been talking about <laughs> Nebraska or Michigan. So uh, but yeah, I think that they, they fall into that same camp where there is this unrealistic expectation. But also you do sort of see that there is a gulf between where Nebraska ought to be based on its recruiting uh, and, and just based on how much it <laughs> devotes, you know, in terms of fan attention, money, donations, booster, uh, you know, uh, volume, all these things, uh, and and where they actually are. So I kind of looked up the recruiting ranks at uh, 24-7 Sports. They have this really cool kind of composite ranking that looks at, like, you know, each class and quantifies uh, based on the recruits of which star caliber that you pull in, uh, uh, how well you recruited. And so Nebraska, they have consistently had between the 17th and 23rd best recruiting class in the country for each of the past five classes. Uh, They were 20th this past year. They're 20th two years ago, 17th the year before that, which I think was one of Frost's first recruiting classes. Um, So that I think really kind of tells you, okay, this is maybe uh, the the delusions that this this team ought to be competing with like the Alabamas and Ohio States and sort of that class, Clemson's of the world, uh, are overstated, but they should probably be a top 20 team uh, if, if we're looking at their recruiting class. Granted, that still puts them at like fourth or fifth in the Big Ten. Uh, if you look at the talent composite at 24-7 Sports, they were the fifth most talented team in the Big Ten, despite being the 25th best team in the country by the talent uh, composite index. 
So it is a tough conference. It's tough to break into that upper echelon, uh, even when you're like recruiting in the top 20, top 25. But at the same time, if you look at uh, the Scott Frost era and you look at the FPI efficiency rankings for Nebraska each year, they have not been in the top 30 teams. They've only been in the top uh, better than 60th once. Last year, they were 38th overall. uh, And in his first couple years, they're around the top 60. And some of that, well, you could blame Mike Riley. Uh, He left them as the 86th best team in the FPI in his last year. Um, But this, this team is not playing as well as you would expect based on those recruiting classes. And some of it has to do with, and we saw this a lot in the Illinois game, is self-inflicted mistakes and, and, you know, errors in terms of turnovers, bad special teams play. This team has been atrocious in special teams in the FPI rankings. They haven't ranked any better than 115th in the country over the past two years. Uh, And so I think that that kind of comes down to coaching. I mean, you know, Scott Frost, uh, maybe you were expecting more from him than 20th best recruiting, but you're definitely expecting better uh, execution with those recruiting classes than than he's provided them so far. And I think that's really a big source of frustration. But Sarah, you found this story that I thought was kind of hilarious and sad and just bizarre from uh, the local Nebraska paper where they were like, well, if Scott Frost fails what's next for Nebraska? We're out of ideas. We just can't think of anything else. If if bringing back the former quarterback uh, and assuming that that would just lead to the same success doesn't work, we've literally exhausted all of our options here. And it's like, no, that's what... <laughs> You're going to get me in so much trouble here since that's that's the, that's the that was written by a former colleague of mine at the newspaper I used to work for. <laughs> Sorry, Sarah. Sorry. But it is funny, right? Because that is the mentality. It really is like, well, we've tried everything. We've brought back the former quarterback with the Tom, uh, Tom Osborne ties, and we've got no more ideas. Again, again, very similar to Michigan <laughs> with the former quarterback, the Michigan man, which is our only option because we tried one non-Michigan man, Rich Rodriguez, and it was a disaster. We have to only have people who graduated from here on out. Yeah, I... I- that is so fascinating to me that the it's the nostalgia factor that feels like like an anchor almost on these programs like like we have to have someone with this connection to to the good old days or um or we'll lose that in some way we'll lose what made our program great um and i mean i you know when when Nebraska hired Scott Frost, I was like, a, I was a little like, I mean, yes, he had just come off of the undefeated, the national champion season at, at UCF, um, <laughs> where he had been for two years. We're still using other other people's recruits. And, um, you know, there there was I think there was a little bit too much hype there. But really, it was about the the the, the Nebraska sun coming home um, that would lead them back to the 90s glory and i mean that kind of thinking i think is a huge problem not recognizing the like current football landscape and like building from something new really just wanting what you had back in the in the good old days and and that just it makes me kind of sad um because i think you know there's still this great tradition to recruit on of course and that that but that tradition doesn't mean that you have to build the program that way over and over again um 
there are a lot of really talented young coaches in the game. You don't have to just just get a guy who used to who used to play for you. You know, I wonder about that too because you know, I, my, I, I sort of follow my because my brother and my wife went there Georgetown basketball, and for so long Georgetown just recruited on the tradition. You know, like this reputation of. Um, you know, Allen Iverson and Patrick Ewing and all these guys. And then uh, you start to realize like all these kids being recruited, none of them were alive when this team was good. And I think for a team like Nebraska, you know, like how far does that get you? It Eventually that kind of runs out. I mean, the brand only will take you so far, especially when you're decades removed from like real success. Um, not, not to, you know, continue to, poured on Nebraska here. I mean, I feel bad. There's a whole college football season ahead of us, but it, it it's definitely a program that's in trouble for sure, as is Michigan. So it gives me, you know, I like to see it <laughs> happening to other fan bases. Well, and I think something similar was happening with Alabama by like the mid 2000s, right? I mean, they were sort of, they were dominant. They won the national championship as recently as the early 90s. Uh, and they were sort of falling on hard times and trying to figure out how to thread the needle of, you know, we have a great tradition, we have a rabid fan base, but we're just not winning uh, and and maybe not even recruiting like we ought to. And it obviously Nick Saban, who's probably the greatest coach ever, maybe in any sport, but certainly in college football, played a big role in turning that around. But it did show that it's like it is possible to do that and it doesn't necessarily require falling back on tradition as much as building something new and building kind of a a pipeline type of machine that leverages your position within the state and within the region, but also doesn't make these appeals to players that were like not alive when you last had any kind of real success. Yeah, just poach a big time rival coach and throw millions of dollars at him. <laughs> Absolutely, that's the way to do it. No, I I think you're right, and you know I've seen a lot of takes that are like, well, how else are people gonna, you know, they, Lincoln, Nebraska is not a not a place you want to you want to go, so you have to have a different kind of selling point. And I just disagree with that completely. I think kids want to play football. They want to play football where they're going to have a chance to win. And if you build a winning tradition and and you can make that pitch, I mean, Ames, Iowa is also not exactly a, a you know, a, a vacation spot for most people. For me, it is, obviously, but not for most and people. And I'm not sure Tuscaloosa, Alabama is either. I mean, it's really yeah. like there are, I think the kids feed off of though the 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 attention and the energy and the passion that the fans have so in that sense uh nebraska is starting from a place where at least you do have that yeah i uh i I do really wonder how this is going to play out um it's hard to imagine scott frost getting getting the axe (laughs) um especially mid-season that just that just seems basically impossible to me but but it's you know it'll be it'll be interesting to see how they approach the future of that program if they really are concerned with moving forward instead of just just, instead of just looking back I think so Jeff are there uh, are there other teams that are under particular pressure to perform this year and and do they all wear maize and blue Uh, look I, I don't want to talk about Michigan I, I think this. <laughs> That's not true. I, no, I mean I'm. I gladly will talk about Michigan, but I think just anecdotally, I, this is the probably the least fanfare I can ever remember heading into a Michigan season. Um, I think expectations have bottomed out in what year seven 
of Jim Harbaugh. I think the fan base kind of unilaterally wants him gone, which is not a great place. Uh, I don't know if even Nebraska is quite there yet, but expectations are low. So in some ways, it's kind of house money if, if they are good. They have a new defensive coordinator breaking in an entirely new system. That should bode well, right? Uh, no. That'll be bad. But in terms of pressure, you know, I'm interested a lot in Oklahoma. I think I think Oklahoma, if you look at their college football playoff track record, which is quite bad, they really this to me under Lincoln Riley, this is probably their best chance at a national championship. Their defense, their defense that I think just a couple of years ago to LSU in the playoff gave up 63 points when everyone in the country was watching is now like really quite good. It's the strength of the team and it really can compete with the offense. And you have Spencer Rattler who was, you know, making, they, they got off to that rough start last year and he, he was definitely making a lot of mistakes for a guy of no experience. And he got better as the year went on. And, um, he's now the Heisman favorite. So, so they really kind of have everything going for them, uh, beyond, uh, also leaving their conference in a, a couple of years now. But, um, you know, they, they don't have any margin for error, which is really interesting because they're out of conference. I mean, they play Tulane, they play an FCS team, and they play Nebraska. Nebraska was supposed to be their tough out of conference game, uh, bringing back like a really old rivalry. And now that game probably is going to have a, a spread of multiple, you know, multiple touchdowns. So, they really can't lose any games, I think, to to really make a convincing case for the playoff. I mean, if they if they win the conference and they'll probably probably, you know, it's them and Iowa State, I would think. Well, and that's and that's really interesting. I've been thinking about Oklahoma and Texas in that in that, you know, is this do they they have a couple more seasons, probably, <laughs> maybe to like win in a place that is much easier to win in. I mean, like, I don't see Oklahoma winning the SEC very often. Um, I don't see Texas winning it ever, right? So so is the pressure really on them right now to win and sort of um, show that they deserve to be in the SEC from from an actual game outcome standpoint? Like, the money involved, the alignment there, sure. No, I mean, that all makes sense, whatever. But, like... Are they going to get played off the field in the SEC? That's what every every um, leftover Big Twelve fan is is hoping for. Um, but do they? Is the pressure really on them to win now in the Big Twelve before they before they move on to a much more difficult road? Well, and then if you flip that around, I think there's also pressure on teams in the SEC to be able to win before this influx of you know, even more talent and even more prestige programs enter. Like I think about Texas A&M, you know, uh, always one of the best teams on paper and hasn't really uh, had that special season. And and they're sort of losing their cachet, uh, which seems to be very important to them of being like the only Texas school in the SEC when, uh, when University of Texas joins up. So I think they're under pressure to do that. And I think Georgia is under pressure. I mean, I don't think Kirby Smart is going anywhere anytime soon soon but this is another program that uh on paper always seems like it should be right in that national championship conversation and they just sometimes find ways to not make the playoff or when they do they can't quite finish the job uh and so 
I, I definitely think that Georgia, this might be their best team uh, on paper that they've had during this Kirby Smart era. They got JT Daniels at quarterback. He's got, you know, experience, extra experience from his time at USC. So I don't know. I, I feel like it's kind of now or never for them as well, uh, especially when you look down the line and you see Oklahoma and Texas, you know, joining your league uh, years down the line. Yeah, I think you're right on Georgia. I think this is, I mean, obviously this Clemson game, while you know will do a lot if they can if they can beat Clemson that would um, obviously help their their playoff candidacy remarkably which I, I think is you know great scheduling but but even beyond that even if they were to lose with Florida kind of losing everyone on offense Kyle Pitts and Trask and and Tony and all those guys it, it's kind of theirs for the taking in the SEC East there really is no significant competition in that so they will have a shot at Alabama or or presumably Alabama. I mean, it's it's a crazy thing about Alabama. And actually, I think this applies to Ohio State also, that it doesn't matter who they lost. They're just so loaded. They're so deep. They have NFL guys up and down the roster waiting to come in. I mean, they, they lost like, you know, almost their entire offensive line to the, uh, the NFL. So maybe that struggles a little bit in the beginning. And obviously, with Young, they have a new quarterback. Um, I just don't see it mattering. I, I, although I do think Miami will be a little better. I, I don't. I can't. I mean, look, it's a it's a nineteen nineteen and a half point spread. So it, even the odds makers are, are not expecting a close game here. But um, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna catch them off guard like a little rusty breaking in a new uh, offensive line, new quarterback, then this is the week to do it because they'll just get better as the year goes on. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, although, you know, I, I feel like by the end of every season uh, on this show, we end up griping about the lack of parity in college football and sort of the predictability of the playoff. And so maybe my hopes are higher for that being slightly different this year, just because so many of the top teams lost so much and particularly quarterbacks. Um, like there was a note from ESPN's uh, stats and info group where they, they looked at the top seven teams in the football power index and of those top seven all but two had their quarterbacks their starting quarterback from last year drafted by the nfl so i mean we know there was research in fact jeff you and i looked at this with with michigan a few years ago because it all comes back to michigan uh the that you know losing the uh, your starting quarterback does have like a pretty huge tangible effect on the offense uh and so maybe with that many different contenders trying to work through new quarterbacks there could be the potential for at least some new blood in the playoffs I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just talking myself into that and flash forward three, four months. We'll be complaining as always about, oh, it's Clemson and Alabama and Ohio State again. This is so boring. I hate this. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if you look <laughs> at that, to go back to the Heisman odds, uh, so Rattler's the, the favorite and Bryce Young, Alabama's quarterback, is the number two favorite. Um, along with DJ, and I won't try to pronounce your last name, DJ. Hopefully I'll know it by the end of the season. uh, Clemson's quarterback, who's played a little um, when Lawrence was down. He's the second favorite with Bryce Young in 11-1. And then C.J. Stroud, Ohio State's new quarterback, who hasn't played at all, is just right uh, six shortest odds, and he's never played. Um, So that could just be odds makers plugging in. I could be the quarterback of Ohio State and I would be, uh, you know, 20 to one to win the Heisman just because that, that 
that offense is no, but Jeff, you go wouldn't on. because you would sabotage Ohio State. They would know that you're right, a rogue right. agent I meant from a the hypothetical inside. Jeff, who was a uh, <laughs> back in high school days, um, and maybe they knew nothing about, but they assumed I must be good if I'm starting at Ohio State. Um, but the point is, like, part of that is obviously the consistent quality of those offenses. But, you know, it's also a testament to these guys being huge recruits and, and, you know, superior talents and the inevitability that even if it's a little bumpy in the beginning, they by the end of the year, they will be the best players in the country on the best teams. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was like getting all hyped up for the season um, and then like looking at who pundits have picked for the, the playoff. And it's just the same, the same. It thing. is. Maybe Georgia. It, it probably <laughs> But like, yeah, maybe it's, Iowa it's the State. Same frankly, I mean, Iowa State's no. a good team. Gonna... Brock Purdy is, uh, you know, this is his year to really like make a name of himself. I mean, people who follow college football know Brock Purdy, but I don't think he's like captured the uh, the zeitgeist yet. And uh, <laughs> it's possible. Just wait till Brocktober, Jeff. Hey, <laughs> that's, that's I'm always a, ready that's for Brocktober. That'll be the one time when his name serves him better than Spencer Rattler's name serves him, which is 365 days a year. Spencer Rattler, yeah, best name, all time name ever, yeah. Yeah. maybe. No, this is actually this is this is the point of the college football season where everything feels possible, right? Um, and and I can't. I'm already like. I'm I'm preemptively let down by whatever my team does. Hey Sarah, I, eight Sarah, eight point six percent chance of making the playoff for uh, the Cyclones. Believe hey, it. I mean, no, that's probably the highest it's literally ever been, right? So I, I that's that's great, but but this is where the the potential is here for for everyone, right? For every for every fan, except for Nebraska fans, I guess. And it is. I think this year is a little bit. It, it means a little bit more knowing how much chaos is on the horizon with these with these conferences. You know, we didn't talk about the alliance between the Big Ten and and Pac twelve and ACC. It's like, oh, cool, great. I mean, we're just we're we're we literally are hurtling towards two big super conferences, or maybe just one <laughs> big super conference at some point. Um, college football is really changing in ways that. In ways that are really good, I, in my opinion, I mean the the players have more power. They can make money. This is these are good things. Um, make money off of their likeness, but it's also changing in really scary ways that I'm not sure how I'm going to deal with as a fan and what it will mean for for my team going forward. So it I don't know. This season feels like it feels like there's so much possibility here, and then we're going to end up with the same four teams in the playoffs. All right. Well, the college football season, you know, we got a little taste of it last last week, but it's happening for real now. Let's all get prepared and root for some some interesting outcomes. Um, and yeah, we can leave this discussion here for now. We'll take a quick break and be back in a moment to talk about the Paralympics. We're not quite done with tournaments in Tokyo. The Paralympic Games are in full swing. There have been some incredible stories so far, like TikTok sensation and visually impaired swimmer Anastasia Pagonas taking home gold, sprinter Nick Mayhew breaking 11 seconds in the 100 meters, not once, but twice. On ESPN's Around the Horn, Tony Reale took the time to shout out swimmer Jessica Long, who made history at these Paralympic Games. 25 career medals for Long, dominating in the 200 IM. 
She was born with fibular hemimelia, double amputee now below the knee. Last year, she told Chloe Toscano for Allure magazine, until every person with a challenge feels included, we should be working to make things even better. Para means parallel. The Paralympics are parallel with the Olympics. What a champion. In the time since that take was recorded, Jessica Long has won yet another medal. On Tuesday in Tokyo, she won silver in the 400-meter freestyle for her 26th medal. And she still has two events left, the 100-meter butterfly and breaststroke. Jeff, how big of a deal is Long's 26 medals? Where does she land in terms of Olympic and, and Paralympic athletes? She's right, obviously, uh, behind Michael Phelps, who uh, had 28 medals, which is obviously remarkable in that, you know, no one's even close to that in terms of um, the Olympics, Olympic record at the Paralympics, though. She had a long way to go. American swimmer Trisha Zorn with 50, 55 medals. Is that right? 55. Something like that. 55. I saw some 57 somewhere 41 else. 41 golds. 41, 41 golds. And goals. just, she really did it in remarkable, with remarkable longevity. The first Paralympics were in the Netherlands. She won five golds there, and then she won golds in 84, and then uh, in 88 in Seoul, 92 in Barcelona, and then 96 in Atlanta. And then, you know, that was it for golds, but she kept winning medals all the way through Athens in 2004 so essentially every olympics uh paralympics from 1980 to 2004 24 years she medaled in so that that's pretty remarkable and obviously the in the, her first couple uh she you know really racked up the goals especially in seoul and barcelona so it'll take a few more but i, I think it shows uh you know longevity is possible and uh you know just needs to compete until you know 2032 and she, she could be right there <laughs> yeah 55 may, that seems like that might that might last for a while but you know she's um long as in she's in third place for total paralympic medals um so behind trisha zorn but then just one medal behind norwegian skier ragnald michaelbust who won 27 medals so she could jessica long could could move up into second this um, in this event, which is pretty amazing. She's just racking up these medals. They, she would have won one more already, except um, the relay that the American swimmers looked to have won, they were disqualified in for a, for a, bad, uh, a bad handoff. So she, she was denied that, uh, that second place right now. <laughs> which was if, you had, if you had 26 gold medals, would you, I mean, do you even display them all? Do you just get like a really like what's your strategy there? Can you like give a couple out, you know, to friends and family? You know, if you like, let's say last minute Christmas gift, like have one of my gold medals. <laughs> I've got 25 others. What if it's like a not a super close friend? You're like, here's a bronze. Here's <laughs> one of my bronzes. What a snub! I feel right? like that could have been that could have been like the premise behind like a Seinfeld episode where like one of them got only a bronze and they're mad about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Jerry, they gave her a gold. They didn't give me a, anything but a bronze. Oh my goodness! Amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think you have to give them out at that at that point. You know, you don't need to you don't need to hoard them. You can you can give them away. Um, we also have an excellent piece up on our site by our colleague John Lopke about how people who race in wheelchairs overtake Olympic racers in um, many track events 
but not all of them. In the longer track events, not the shorter ones. Neil, how are wheelchair racers finding that edge? Well, yeah, like you mentioned, it really is based on distance. So uh, the the point at which they're sort of equalized is around 400 meters. And then once you get to at least 800 meters and up, uh, the wheelchair athletes are, in fact, much faster. If you look at 5,000 meters, they're able to uh, finish much faster than the able-bodied racers over the same distance. And it really has to do with how the wheelchairs work in terms of how they take uh, more time to get up to full speed, which is why the sprinters, the able-bodied runners are able to finish faster on short distances. But once you get up to full speed in the chair, uh, you're able to conserve so much energy going forward and sort of momentum going forward uh, that it gives the para-athletes the edge as they're doing that. And really the equipment has changed a lot in, uh, in, in the years that they've been doing the Paralympics. So really when it first started out, there wasn't a lot of special equipment specifically for racing but ever since you've seen sort of the weight go down the athletes have gotten faster stronger bigger all of those tra- uh, they've they've used more specialized training uh regiments and so all of those things have kind of come together to allow uh wheelchair racers to really maximize the ability and and, and the idea of the one of the great things about the paralympics is that it's about the the athlete and the equipment in this case the the wheelchair sort of working together as one and finding a way to kind of make it all work in concert together as sort of like uh, the the perfect mesh of technology and and humanity. So I think that that's one of the really cool things that that we see with that. And I was surprised, like I had not thought about those comparisons necessarily, but I was also sort of surprised that there was like I thought maybe it would be uniform where like the either the wheelchairs are faster across all the distances or uh, vice versa. But it, it, it's, I think, telling about the physics of how it actually works that there is this sort of break-even point where you see the, the wheelchair racers become faster at a certain distance. I thought that I loved that story. And I thought the a quote in it from a, a designer of racing wheelchairs was so fascinating. He talked about building this wheelchair for this elite athlete. And it becomes an extension of her. It's not just like, this is the machine that I use. No, this is this becomes part of part of me as I am a complete athlete with this in this chair. And and I thought that was such a cool way to think about it. Um, and you can I mean, the tech, it is amazing. And in, and the the advancements that they've been able to make. I love that there's like, there's still that there is there are still edges, though. And you know, we talk, we think about that a lot in how um, athletes and teams can find edges when you know everyone has the kind of same rough information that they're working off of. Um, but there's this like, okay, how can we make the, you know, getting off the block faster? How can we make that initial burst faster in um, in a wheelchair? Since that's where it's it's that's where there's still a little bit of more of an edge to be found. Um, so I think we'll see those times just get faster and faster, which is is so fun to see. Um, I've really enjoyed, I mean, yes, I love the Olympics. It's true. Uh, Neil um, was 
teasing me this morning about my uh, my <laughs> exuberance. Your Olympic for addiction. All things Olympics. I know I'm going to be so sad when it's all over. Um, but no, just, because you'll have the winter ones just right around the corner. Such a good point. So I can I can hold on to that. Um, but like I I've really I've gotten into the to wheelchair basketball. The American women beat Canada this morning to uh, to earn their berth into the semifinals, which is exciting. Um, what kind of what sports have you are you have caught your guys' eye what in the Paralympics? There's a couple sports that are specific to the Paralympics that aren't in the Olympics. I think those are really fun too. Yeah, I liked the one, and you put a link to this in our kind of prep for the show, but I really like this sport goalball, which is essentially you have um, goalkeepers at one end, and this is played by blind athletes, and uh, so you have uh, some, some people defending the goal, and then you have someone who basically bowls this ball, which has... Um, it has noise making uh, things inside of it, so like bells, so that um, essentially it, it gets bounced down and, and you have to sort of react to what you're hearing and where you think the ball is going to be and try to stop it. Uh, and uh, the, the, the flair with which they sort of throw the ball and, and, and bowl it down to the end is kind of varied and, and interesting and cool looking. Uh, they can kind of do like pirouettes as they kind of release it or whatever. And, uh, and then also it, it is fun to see it sort of like uh, to see either a successful save or to see it sort of like bounce through and, and get, uh, get in. So I think that that's a cool, and it's a very simple, simple idea that um, you kind of think of, uh, you, you look at it and you're like, oh, that's kind of a cool, simple idea for a sport uh, that, that people should have thought of a, a long time ago. I know. I, uh, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I hadn't heard of goalball until uh, Sarah was circulating the link. And <laughs> man, I mean, it's also, first of all, you're right. It's almost like they're throwing it like a, like a cricket bowler. Is that the right term? Um, in the kind of the the motion that comes, but also the uh, the goaltending just going on um, hearing is really kind of cool to watch. I kind of want kind of want to play goal ball. Um, it's on a, it's on a volleyball court, so in a, with a really wide goal, and it, it's just kind of fun to watch. The reactions are so. I mean, you have to they have to react so quickly to what they're. Um, to what they're hearing and and sensing and, and it's it's really impressive to watch i i have enjoyed that the other sport that's specific to the paralympics is boccia which is a lot like curling so i feel like it could be a sport we really get behind where the players are 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 launching a ball to that's like to get closest to a center jack they call it and so it's it's a lot like a lot like curling, except not on ice. <laughs> um, that is really fun. And it seems like a fun thing that, like, I, I feel like more people should be playing. This, this should be sweeping the nation. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, we're, first of all, yes, we are a pro-curling podcast. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and come February, uh, just as a word of warning, we will only be talking about curling yeah, for two weeks. It'll be a lot. Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. <laughs> But no, it's it's similar to bocce or mm-hmm. petanque. Yeah, if you ever go down to Bryant Park in New York on like a Sunday morning or something, they'll play petanque. Uh, there, there are people who are like very serious petanque players down there. So you can kind of get a taste of something similar to bocce if you live in New York and you go down there. Just a pro tip for you. It's like curling when you don't have ice. Yeah. Or brooms. Which, frankly, most people don't 
have ice, right? <laughs> just in general. <laughs> Why? I like how you clarified that. Most people do have brooms, but they <laughs> well, don't right. have ice. Exactly. Yeah. No, it is weird that curling is the one that has caught on lately since like why it's just harder see it just has it an is extra why level of ice it, it, and I, you, I every moment in the world olympics i definitely have that why why am i watching this <laughs> i have it every time i see hockey guys <laughs> but i love that i love your enthusiasm for the paralympics i've actually i've actually have the rare distinction of i've never been to the olympics but i have been to the paralympics oh. um i went in barcelona in 92 happened to be there traveling my family and you know it happened to be an olympic what year the olympics were over it just happened to be in barcelona man <laughs> I, no 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 it, look it was uh it, it was a we my dad was a big traveler so we would often do these kind of pick a country in europe and stay in cheap hotels and travel around and uh we were in Barcelona and just kind of walked in, you know, bought tickets at the gate for the Paralympics because kind of wanted to just see the stadium, which was still up um, and, you know, really cool and scenic. If you remember that stadium showing my age here, obviously, <laughs> in 1992, but um, it was great. It was so much fun and it was so exciting. And you, I think you definitely see these stories that, you know, that are really inspiring. I was reading the story about uh, Oksana Masters, who won a gold medal in, in hand cycle. And she's now won medals in both the winter and summer Paralympics. Uh, she was a cross country skier. She's also won medals in rowing. So she's clearly just a great athlete. Um, but she really interesting story. She was born basically in Chernobyl, um, with all these birth defects from the disaster there and was adopted by an American woman and grew up in America. But, um, kind of cool just to you don't that's something you definitely don't see in the able body olympics is i mean I, I guess except for lolo jones but i don't think she meddled um you don't see people doing both winter and summer and it's actually you know she's not the first it, it, it has happened in the past you know people competing in, in both versions of this yeah jeff it happens it's so much more rare in in the olympics although it did happen this year uh american baseball player um eddie alvarez um meddled Get, won the silver medal with the American baseball team, and he had medaled in the Winter Olympics as a speed skater. So I, like, I'm just impressed with I'm impressed with anyone who can master any one sport, much less like all of these different sports. Um, pretty pretty cool. Yeah, the Paralympics um, are still going strong this week. There'll be lots of of medal events people can check out. Um, the basketball gets down to gets down to business the rest of this week, which will be really fun to watch too. So we can leave this here for now. Let's take a break and then we'll be back in a moment for a rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, what do you have for us? So even though the Boston Red Sox have not exactly been playing their best baseball recently, lefty Chris Sale has returned from Tommy John surgery to pick up right where he left off. So Sale is 3-0 and in his three starts since coming back from an elbow injury that sidelined him for basically two full calendar years, and he's recorded 21 strikeouts against just three walks in 15 and a third innings so far this season. I wanted to highlight one of those innings in particular, the third inning of his start last Thursday against your Minnesota Twins, Sarah. So Sale faced 
Center fielder Nick Gordon, he struck him out swinging on three pitches. Then he faced shortstop Andrelton Simmons and struck him out swinging on the third pitch of the bat as well. And then finally, against right fielder Rob Refsnyder, he got yet another swinging strikeout on three pitches. So nine pitches, nine strikes, three strikeouts for sale, giving him what is known as an immaculate inning. In the entirety of baseball history, immaculate innings are still pretty rare. Sales was only the 104th in MLB history, dating back to 1889, when Boston Bean Eaters pitcher John Clarkson threw the first ever immaculate inning, on record at least. In terms of commonality, that puts the immaculate inning somewhere between hitting for the cycle, which has happened 333 times, or no hitters, which have happened 313 times, and the perfect game, which has happened just 23 times. So it's not quite as rare as a perfect game, but uh, more rare than than a no-hitter. But the history of Immaculate Innings is also a lot more shrouded in mystery than some of those other accomplishments, just because pitch-by-pitch information is not complete throughout the history of Major League Baseball. It may well be that there have been more Immaculate Innings truly thrown than the ones that we have on record. Uh, In fact, the term Immaculate Inning itself is relatively new, with the first reference in the media not really happening until the 2000s. I looked up a uh, Reddit discussion on the origin of the term, and they settled on probably some blogger in 2006, that's a direct (laughs) quote, uh, as the most likely coiner of the phrase immaculate inning. When Kenley Jansen threw an immaculate inning in 2017, he didn't even know that that was a thing. They had to explain it to me, he said. I've been pitching seven or eight years, and I just don't know what that is. But now I know, and it's awesome. We're also, so true. <laughs> we're also sort of living in the golden era of immaculate innings. Through the end of the 2009 season, only 62 known immaculate innings had ever been thrown, which means 42 of the 104 that have ever been thrown have happened in just the last decade plus. And 25 of the 104, so about a quarter of them, have taken place just since the start of the 2017 season. At the time, SB Nation Seth Rosenthal called 2017 the year of the Immaculate Inning, and that was true. There were eight Immaculate Innings that year, which broke the old record of seven, which had been set just a few years earlier in 2014. The record before that was five in 1998, which didn't even fully include Florida Marlins pitcher Jesus Sanchez's near double Immaculate Inning when he struck out three Atlanta Braves, but on 10 pitches in the second inning of a game, and then did the real deal, three more strikeouts on nine pitches in the following inning. So he could have had back-to-back Immaculate Innings. Instead, he only had uh, one. But 2019, you could have also called that the year of the Immaculate Inning because that season also saw eight Immaculate Innings tying the record. Sales was the fourth we've seen in 2021 so far, uh, but it was made more historic by the fact that it was the third of his career. He also did it twice as part of that barrage of Immaculate Innings from 2019. Sale joined Sandy Koufax as the only pitcher ever to throw three Immaculate Innings in a career. Koufax did it for the first time in 1962, then he did it again in 1963, and then he did it again in 1964. So he threw immaculate innings one per year in three straight seasons. Of course, Koufax was known as the left arm of God for a reason. After that 1964 immaculate inning, he was personally responsible for three of the 15 or 20% of all the immaculate innings that had ever been thrown to that point in history, and for three of the seven that had happened uh, since 1929, because no immaculate innings happened at all between 1929 and 1952. 
Sale, uh, for his part, is only responsible for a little bit less than 3% of all the immaculate innings that have ever happened to date, though Koufax did admittedly have a bit of a head start on him, chronologically speaking. With Sale back in the fold, the Red Sox have a much-needed extra weapon in their arsenal to try to stave off a late-season collapse and make the playoffs, but his teammates have to try to be immaculate as well. If you exclude those three starts by Sale, Boston is just 9-18 and since July 29th. And thanks in part to the Yankees' recent winning streak, the Red Sox playoff odds are now down to 62%. They were sitting above 90% as recently as late July. But Sale has done his part for the team, and we'll see on Wednesday if he can break the record for career immaculate innings by setting down three Tampa Bay Rays in an inning on nine straight strikes. (laughs) I I feel like that'll be a little harder to do against the against Rays. Against the Rays. Then against, yeah, a little bit than the, the Twins. Twins. I know. Yeah. Sorry. Hey, the Twins have been better recently. I also wanted to know what you guys thought of, you know, so the Immaculate Inning, very impressive show of dominance. But Logan Webb, we should coin something for what he did uh, this past week where he had a three-pitch inning. He hit the first batter of the inning, got a ground ball double play on the second pitch, and then allowed a screaming fly ball that was caught at the warning track for the third out. So three pitches, three outs, but done in the most unconventional and perhaps least impressive way possible. There, ha- Like an unimmaculate inning? I don't know what the word <laughs> for that would be. Is there a name for a three-pitch inning? How common is that? I'm curious. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could call it like a Maddox. That's what they call the super um, low-pitch complete game, and Maddox was sort of the master of like the efficient three-pitch inning type of thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's a word for that yet. By the way, shout out to um, – I'm such a shameless Met fan – but shout out to Jacob DeGrom, who actually shockingly has never had an immaculate inning. I find that really hard to believe. I'm surprised he didn't have one this year, the way he was pitching for a few games there, where he was just completely unhittable. But he did come one pitch away from immaculate inning. This is back in 2015, I think, when he you know, really wasn't very well known. One pitch away from having an immaculate inning in an all-star game. Uh, ten pitches, three strikeouts. So th- that would have been something and 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 things that almost happened yeah but like against all-stars again that's slightly better than against the backup twins the twins (laughs) yes it does feel like with the amount of strikeouts now it's gonna lose its luster a little bit with guys just you know in an o2 count just swinging for the fences That, that that didn't happen back in the day so I'm kind of more impressed by the Koufaxes and the 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 guys back in the day who used to do it. I mean, people prided themselves on putting the ball in play, though. Yeah. Like, that was such a bigger thing. Like, you think about Joe DiMaggio, who, uh, you know, never once, I believe, struck out more times than he walked. Uh, and, in fact, struck out uh, just a little bit more than half of his number of walks over his whole career. You know, nowadays, you see, like... Um, the the Adam Dunn style opposite of that. <laughs> Every player has morphed into that. Like uh, we saw, we had the stat for a story just this week that Juan Soto is the only player in baseball who has more walks than strikeouts. That is wild. It's just wild. <laughs> I mean, among qualified hitters, obviously, there's probably some dude that has like two walks and one strikeout. Right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it really, it really just shows how much the game has changed for sure. I don't know. I'm still impressed by immaculate innings. I think these are major league hitters 
most of them. And, you know, they, they are good at hitting the ball. They're good at making contact at, in some way. And yeah, I, it is, I still think, I think it's still impressive. I, I, I think it's cool. Good job, Christian. All right. Thanks for that rabbit hole, Neil. That will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.